Welcome to the Bulgarian History Podcast, Episode 95, The Second Turnovo Uprising. Now, there are no new patrons from Patreon this time, but I did want to make a quick mention. So just the other day, I met with uh, a nice young Bulgarian fan of the podcast. We had coffee in the afternoon. And then just today, I got an email. And in both of these, we had discussions about kind of, you know, gaps, something that they thought, you know, heard mentioned in the podcast and didn't really agree with or thought, oh, there's this other bit of information you didn't know about. And so that gave me the idea to kind of put this out there to everyone that, you know, anything in the podcast, if you hear and you think there's some source I missed, or if you think there's just some aspect of it that, that I don't know about, by all means, feel free to reach out. I mean, I, I do all the research for this by myself. And so, you know, my resources and time are limited. And if you've got a point to something and you can back it up with some, you know, historians to quote or some primary sources or something, I would just love to hear from you. And if I end up using it, I can give you a shout out and everything and really thank you. But I think you all know that, you know, of course I can't get everything right. And the history evolves. I mean, it's been almost six years since I started the podcast and my thoughts on some of the things in the early episodes have changed and evolved over that time. But I'm always trying my best, and if one of you can help out, I would so appreciate that. I think all the other listeners would too. So if you've got an idea, reach out and hope to talk to you. But now let's get into it. So last time, we saw the second Ottoman attempt to take Vienna end in a bloody disaster as an allied imperial and Polish army attacked and defeated them, pushing the Ottomans back into their territory and retaking much of Hungary before being held back at an unsuccessful siege of Buda. Meanwhile, the Venetians joined the fight, conquering some Ionian islands and a substantial portion of western Greece. Now, it's time to see how the Ottomans are going to respond. But first, let's get back to our old friend Imre Tokoli, the prince of Upper Hungary, who had supported the Ottomans before getting blamed in part for the disaster at Vienna. Now, Seeing he was on thin ice, he turned to the Polish king Jan Sobieski, promising to change sides if he were also given control of Austrian-controlled Hungary and if Protestant rights were protected there. However, Emperor Leopold would accept nothing but unconditional surrender, wanting to really dominate Hungary himself, and so Tokoli was forced to remain with the Ottomans. During 1685, he led a force in a counterattack, north of the Danube from Hungary into what's now Slovakia, but was defeated. When he returned to the Ottomans, he was imprisoned, leading his Hungarian Protestant followers to largely surrender to the Austrians. The Austrians, for their part, spent the year focusing on one major prize, Buda. After their costly failure to take the city two years previously, the Holy League army was far better prepared and larger this time. Somewhere between 65,000 and 100,000 Germans, Croats, Dutch, Hungarians, Englishmen, Swedes, Burgundians, Danes, Spaniards, Czechs, Italians, French, and Catalans faced off 
against 7,000 seasoned Ottoman defenders. This motley army arrived at the walls of Buda in mid-June and by late July had made their first all-out assault on the walls, losing 5,000 men and failing to take them. Two weeks later, an Ottoman relief force arrived, but it had no real effect. It was kept away from the walls as the heterogeneous Holy League army finally entered the city, ending 143 years of Ottoman rule there. Then, a massacre ensued. Fear of the Ottomans, anger over Christian propaganda, which pointed to horrendous atrocities supposedly inflicted upon Christians there, and the ever-present fear of the other, drove the soldiers to rape and murder with abandon. Thousands of Muslims and Jews of the city were killed. The Jews, because they had fought with the Ottomans, understanding that the Sultan in Constantinople was far more tolerant of them than the Emperor in Vienna. By the end, after thousands were killed or taken off into slavery, the remaining Jews and Muslims of the city fled. An army doctor from Brandenburg said of the events, quote, Not even the babies in their mother's wombs were spared. All were sent to their deaths. I was quite horrified by what was done here. Men were far more cruel to each other than wild beasts. End quote. Now, the old Hungarian capital was finally captured, but its fate, along with the fate of the Hungarian people, will have to wait. And, a quick side note here, it's interesting, after 143 years of Ottoman rule, today Budapest has barely any buildings from it. I mean, there is the Rudas Baths, which I used to enjoy when I lived there along the Danube, and there's a very small place called the Gulbaba Shrine, which I would also visit sometimes on a hill on the Buddha side with a lovely view of the city. But besides one more prominent area in this sort of hidden little shrine area, there's nearly no kind of record that the city ever was ruled by the Ottomans. And, well, it's an interesting contrast with the rest of the Balkans. So just something kind of interesting to point out. And if you visit Budapest, see if you can find any kind of historical remnants there. And if you find some that you think are interesting, let us know. All right. Now, as the capture of Buddha took up the vast majority of Holy League forces, 1685 was largely a quiet year on the European front besides that. Now, there was one battle between the Ottomans and the Poles, though I couldn't really find any details about it. And the Ottomans replaced the former Voivoda of Moldavia with Konstantin Kantemir, who had fought with them recently and was considered reliable. Fortunately for the Moldavians, he was also interested in protecting them from the more abusive tax farming that had been doing so much harm to the country recently. Now, the bulk of the fighting that year occurred with the Venetians. During the late months of 1684 and the early months of 1685, Venice had signed treaties with Saxony and Hanover, bringing in nearly 6,000 mercenaries from these states to aid the fighting in Greece. The main target for the year was Morea, also known as the Peloponnese. No surprise that this war with Venice in particular is called the Morean War. The Venetians were already in discussions with local Greek anti-Ottoman rebels in Morea as the Ottomans were gradually reinforcing their garrisons there in preparation for the attack that was to come. In June, a Venetian force of 8,000 landed on one of the southern tips of Greece and began a siege of a former Venetian fort called Koron. 
For just under two months of summer, Ottoman attempts to relieve the fortress failed, and it ultimately surrendered. The garrison was promised safe return to their homes, but foul play was suspected, and so they were ultimately massacred. Now around this time, more uprisings occurred, emboldening the Venetians to move and meet around 6,000 Ottoman infantry and 2,000 cavalry which had landed to stop them. The Venetians conquered another fortress before defeating the Ottoman force by mid-September. Castles they felt couldn't be defended were destroyed, while others were garrisoned as the Venetians returned to their bases in the Ionian Islands to wait out the winter. Now over the winter, disease ravaged the Venetians, and the Ottomans had time to fully prepare for a proper counterattack. This began in March of 1686, before the Venetians had time to depart their winter island quarters. But the Ottomans who attacked ended up retreating and lifting the siege they had begun when the Venetians finally arrived. Still, they couldn't go, the Venetians at least, couldn't go on the offensive quite yet, as they had to await further reinforcements. But when those reinforcements came, the Venetian force now numbered some 11,000 men. This new force came to its first fortress, cut the aqueduct that supplied its waters, and took it the next day. Interestingly, the garrison consisted of black Africans. And, well, I'll take this moment to mention a book I'm reading at the moment and quite enjoying called Ottoman Odyssey by journalist Alev Scott about the legacy of the Ottoman Empire around the region and all the peoples and languages and cultures that got mixed up and changed and altered some way by the legacy of the empire and how it's reflected in contemporary politics. Uh, it's been really fascinating and reflects all these regional countries that I enjoy so much. Now, this book mentions the so-called Black Turks, which were descendants, which are rather, descendants of slaves taken from East Africa who now live in Turkey without any other language or citizenship other than Turkish. And yet they are seen as outsiders and barely known of as a minority group. It's, I think, one of the more interesting legacies of the Ottomans. And if anyone's curious, have a look at the book and you can read more about these black Turks as a kind of curious Anatolian community that still exists to this day. Anyways, within two weeks, a second and even better defended fortress was also taken after yet another Ottoman counterattack failed. The, the Venetians then moved on to another of their former fortresses, and again, it was well defended, modern defenses were used, but it too fell within a week or so. With each one of these conquests, the Ottoman garrisons were transported to various points of North Africa and, well, kind of disposed of. They didn't, weren't killed, but the Venetians had no interest in taking them prisoner. They didn't have the resources for it. But now with all these new conquests of fortresses and things, it was time for the Venetian masterstroke. They quickly loaded up their army and transported it just outside of the regional capital, catching its commander off guard. Soon, Ottoman reinforcements arrived, but were again repulsed. Within about two weeks, the regional capital as well fell. So, all in all, the Venetians were triumphant. They now had a substantial base of operations in both central and southern Greece. As rumors swirled amongst the Ottomans that Morea was to be evacuated, further throwing their forces into chaos. In light of these setbacks, Ottoman reinforcements actually turned back instead of aiding their fellow countrymen in the defense of the region. Meanwhile, 
that the Venetian fleet searched around for the Ottoman fleet, stopping around Greece and meeting many local rebels as they went, and even receiving tribute from the metropolitan of Athens. However, the Venetians were experiencing problems as plague continued to ravage their ranks, taking as many lives as the Ottomans. The plague hit the German mercenaries among them particularly hard, leading many to return home. And with that, the Venetians wrapped up operations for the year as they went back to recruit more soldiers from the German states. Now, during 1686, while the Venetians were finding success in Greece, they also took the fortress of Signa in Dalmatia after two failed attempts. But beyond Venice, several other important things were happening. First, though we don't have too many details, there was a Polish offensive in Moldavia, which was unsuccessful in making any real gains. Imre Tokoli, the prince of Upper Hungary, was released from an Ottoman prison and led an army to attack Holy League-aligned Transylvania, but this too was unsuccessful. But Tokoli wasn't the only person heading north in 1686. Earlier that year, a Bulgarian Sapahi and descendant of Tsar Ivan Stratimir, a man named Rostislav Stratimirovich, left Bulgarian lands from Moscow intent on acquiring support for a general Bulgarian uprising. There, he met with the Patriarch Joachim of Moscow, the head of the Russian Orthodox Church, who promised him aid. My guess is that he didn't meet with the Tsar himself, because there was a regency, and, well, the young Peter I, future Peter the Great, was only 14 years old. Now, the problem with this was that the uprising actually began while Rostislav was away. And so he quickly rushed back to lead the rebellion and was proclaimed Prince of Bulgaria, a kind of precursor to becoming Tsar, though there wasn't really anything to be Tsar of yet. He was proclaimed this by 4,000 supporters who gathered in the former capital of Ternovo to proclaim him. However, it shouldn't come as any great surprise that suppressing an uprising of some 4,000 so close to Constantinople wasn't a problem for the Ottomans. The short-lived uprising was put down almost immediately, and Rostislav fled to Russia. Once again, compared to Greece, Serbia, Moldavia, Wallachia, and any other Ottoman territory, Bulgaria's easy access from Constantinople made anti-Ottoman actions there nearly impossible to sustain. The country was simply cursed by geography to have, you could say, the least successful anti-Ottoman activities, it would be one of the last places foreign armies might reach to while attacking the Ottomans. Now, I do have to mention, though, that on the kind of on the note of that story, the existence of Rostislav is only attested to by his supposed descendants in Russia whose original records have been lost. And so the story of his part in the uprising may be a fiction. We don't know. But Ottoman records do mention an uprising in Bulgaria, so we know some kind of an uprising definitely occurred. But anyways, while Rostislav was allegedly in Russia conducting negotiations, negotiations were also ongoing between Russia and the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth. During that year, those negotiations finally bore fruit. An exchange for recognizing Russian control of Kiev and a portion of what's now Ukraine on the western bank of the Dnieper River, Russia would join the Holy League against the Ottoman Empire. A treaty of eternal peace was signed between Russia and Poland, thus ensuring that those two countries would definitely, absolutely 
never fight again. Okay, a pause, pause for laughter there. Thus, the third Russo-Turkish War began. Though obviously too late to aid the doomed Second Turnovo Uprising. But one last thing that I think is rather important happened, or rather didn't happen, in 1686. There was no Devshirme. For the first time in almost three centuries, the blood tax was not collected in Bulgaria, although, to be fair, its collection had been less common in the previous century, not really happening every year. But while the Devshirme would go on for another few decades elsewhere in the empire, the practice was slowly coming to an end as the Janissary Corps gradually became more of a liability than an asset for the sultans. And we've seen this process happen, happen gradually over a long time. And we'll discuss it in more detail once it's finally abolished completely, but just to mention that the previous year, 1685, was the last year this tax was collected in Bulgaria. So whether you were the kind of person who you know, wanted your child to be taken to give them opportunities, or whether you saw it as a horrendous act and a violation of you per your person and sort of your nation, it was now over. And this kind of signaling the gradual evolution of the Janissary Corps from the product of the Devshirme into more of a hereditary title and a sort of leech on the state and not a very effective fighting force. So to recap, heading into 1687, the Venetians made huge gains in Greece. Russia has joined the Holy League. The Holy League has finally recaptured Buddha. The Poles fought an unsuccessful campaign in Moldavia. The Ottomans failed in an attack on Transylvania. And the Second Turnable Uprising was brutally crushed. Now, the next year began with 132,000 Russian soldiers departing in early May with the aim of positioning themselves on the peninsula connecting Crimea to the mainland, thereby trapping the Crimean Tatars and preventing them from aiding the Ottomans. They soon met up with an additional 50,000 Cossacks. Now comprising a staggeringly large army of over 180,000 men and 100,000 horses, this combined force slowly lumbered south at a rate of just 10 kilometers a day, or what the average person would walk in about two hours. So very, very slowly. Soon, they encountered a hellscape. The Tatars had burned the steppe to deny the combined Russian army the grasses to feed its horses. After enduring this for days, the horses were in terrible shape, and the army was still some 200 kilometers from its goal. Realizing they would never make it there in any shape to fight, the decision was made to construct a fortress where the Samara and Dnieper rivers met, meet, which is modern Dnipro in Ukraine, and once the fortress finished, to turn back. It was June 17th, and the army had marched for exactly one and a half months, and only made it about 250 kilometers. According to Google Maps, you could walk that distance today in the time of, well, basically, if you wanted to walk that distance over the course of 1.5 months, you would have to walk about an hour a day. So, not great progress. In other words, the classic, in sort of classic style, the Russians had assembled an impossibly large army, only to fall prey to poor logistics, planning, and leadership. Meanwhile, in Greece, the Ottomans had established a base in northern Morea of 10,000 men, which were being resupplied across the Gulf of Corinth. 
and this force was intent on preventing the, lo- the total Venetian takeover of the region. The Venetians responded with a naval blockade before moving their now 14,000-man army in to attack. In the battle that ensued, the Venetians won the day as the Ottomans pulled back, their retreat gradually devolving into a panicked rout. The Ottomans pulled back all the way to Thebes, essentially abandoning Morea to the Venetians entirely. The rest of the summer was spent taking the final Ottoman fortresses, and by August, Morea was in Venetian hands, with the exception of a single fortress under siege. The Venetian commanders received lavish gifts and praise for their achievement as they prepared to take Athens and move into central Greece. Now, while the Venetians had been progressing in Greece, a combined Holy League army of about 60,000 had assembled and moved south towards Osijek, which is in modern Slavonia and kind of interior Croatia. Now, Osijek was a crucial crossing point over the Drava River. An Ottoman army of about the same size was dug in behind the crossing to protect it. Somehow, the Ottomans allowed their opponents to get a bridgehead and move their army across the river while only kind of bombarding them with artillery. Now, just why they largely left the Holy League force alone at this extremely vulnerable moment is a mystery. And even more baffling, after several days, the Austrian commander decided not to attack the fortified Ottoman position and instead retreated back over the river, a decision for which he was harshly criticized from above and below within the army structure. Now, seeing they had the upper hand, the Ottomans pursued their foes north towards another fortified Ottoman position and the town of Mohac, site of the catastrophic battle which effectively broke Hungary and brought it under Ottoman rule a century and a half earlier. But the Holy League was stumbling into a trap, The Ottoman fortifications in the area were hidden, and so the imperial army did not suspect they were there or that an Ottoman army was even nearby. As the imperial army marched, its left wing was suddenly attacked by the Ottomans. The Ottomans outnumbered this portion of the Holy League force two to one, but its initial cavalry attack was repulsed. This gave the infantry time to dig in and for the imperial right wing to come to the aid of the left as the Ottomans bombarded them with artillery. By the afternoon, both sides decided to counterattack. The Ottoman cavalry on the right then faltered in a steep, hilly terrain, losing momentum and ultimately routing. In seemingly no time, the entire Ottoman army began to flee, leading to 10,000 casualties and humiliation on the site of their previous grand victory. The Grand Vizier commanding the force feared his own troops would execute him, and so he fled, only to be put to death by the Sultan himself for his failure. It was now September. The Second Battle of Mohach was won, and in Greece, the Venetians were advancing again as winter set in. Their army landed near Athens as their fleet occupied the nearby port. The Muslim population of Athens fled while the city's garrison retreated to the Acropolis to await reinforcements from the main Ottoman force still at Thebes. Thus, a six-day siege of the Acropolis began, resulting in immense destruction of the ancient monuments there, and, most famously, a Venetian mortar shell hitting an ammunition dump, exploding, killing 300 defenders, 
and destroying the roof and walls of the Acropolis. Even to this day, the ruined state of the Acropolis in Athens is largely attributable to this shot and this short siege. Eventually, though, Ottoman reinforcements did arrive, but they were defeated. Knowing there was no longer any hope, the defenders of the Acropolis surrendered and were transported to Smyrna, also known as Izmir, on the Aegean coast of Anatolia. Ruined as it was, Athens now belonged to Venice. Still, Ottoman cavalry controlled the countryside around the city, and the threat of a major counterattack from their force in Thebes still remained. The Venetians built fortresses to reinforce their positions and settled down for the winter, over that time facing yet more plague and death in their ranks. Still, they were victorious. Also, during the late months of that year, the Venetians successfully took Herzog Novi in modern Montenegro, and, around the same time Athens fell, the Ottoman army that had just been defeated in Hungary went into full mutiny. When word reached Constantinople, Koprulu Lazede, Fazl Mustafa Pasha, brother to Koprulu Fazl Ahmed Pasha, and son of Koprulu Mehmed Pasha, founder of the dynasty, became the fifth man in his family to be named Grand Vizier. I'll just call him Fazl because, yeah, the, the name is kind of a lot. And by November, he decided that the empire was in bad enough state to justify overthrowing the sultan and replacing him with his brother. This was done, and Mehmed IV was imprisoned in the Topkapa Palace, though he was eventually allowed to travel on his own. His younger, by three months, brother became Sultan Suleiman II. Quite a name to live up to. He was 45 years old and had just spent 36 years living as a prisoner in the palace. So as 1687 turned into 1688, just how Suleiman would perform was very much up in the air. Would his life in the palace make him another madman? But at least the empire was in the hands of another member of the competent Koprulu dynasty of Grand Viziers. Still, there was no doubt that the Ottomans were in dire strait, fighting four major European powers at once and losing ground nearly everywhere, though the Russians were obviously yet to make a real impact, and the Poles were at this point stuck besieging the fortress of Kamianets Podolsky. Now, the spring of 1688 was relatively quiet. In Greece, the commander of the expedition was elected Doge of Venice, but maintained operational command. Once again, military operations were delayed until June due to the need to await further reinforcements. Meanwhile, the Holy League army that had spent the previous year taking Buda and winning the Second Battle of Mohach was advancing towards this year's target, Belgrade. But the first fighting of the year would occur in Greece. By mid-July, the Venetians were besieging yet another of their former fortresses, Negroponte. This one dominated central Greece and was essential for them to take in order to secure the region. However, Despite having 23,000 soldiers at this point, between their land and sea forces, they could not prevent supplies getting in while plague ravaged their own ranks. While that siege was underway, the Holy League army finally arrived at the walls of Belgrade, lost to the Ottomans 167 years prior as they advanced and conquered Hungary. But while Buda had been defended by just a few thousand, the Ottoman commander of Belgrade, 
had between 25 and 30,000 men under his command, nearly as many as his opponents, in addition to Belgrade's impressive fortifications and strategic position at the meeting of two rivers. The Holy League, though, was bolstered by raising local Serbian militia, eager to liberate their country. The Holy League quickly managed to cross the Sava River under artillery, establishing a bridgehead, which held on despite Ottoman attacks. The Holy League then set about bombarding the fortress with artillery for a full month. Meanwhile, Emperor Leopold offered the commander of Belgrade rule over Wallachia to change sides. But the commander countered the offer by demanding Slavonia, which is that kind of interior part of Croatia, as well as Bosnia. This was refused, and so the siege dragged on. By early September, an all-out assault on the fortress successfully took it, and Belgrade was once again in the hands of, well, non-Ottomans. Meanwhile, back in Greece, the siege of Negroponte was going nowhere. As Venetian allied forces began to go home and abandon the effort, the commander finally gave up, accepting the loss of 9,000 men, a devastating loss with such small forces operating in Greece. Still, they had at least conquered the important Dalmatian fortress of Pnin that year, in effect creating the modern border between Croatia and Bosnia. But now that Belgrade was conquered, yet another group of Bulgarians felt it was time to rise up and throw out the Ottomans. Next time, we'll see whether they find more success. As pressure mounts on all sides, from the Russians, Poles, Austrians, and Venetians, all hoping to keep or expand their gains, as the Ottomans, under a new Grand Vizier and a new Sultan, try to reverse the tide. So, don't miss it. This episode was written and produced by me, Eric Halsey. The theme music was written and performed by Teddy Raven. You can check out the Bulgarian language version of the podcast. And for every one of these episodes, you can find a list of important characters, timeline, maps, images, all that kind of stuff. Sometimes also links to cool YouTube videos about the same historical events on the website. There's a link in the episode description, so check it out.